Hello and welcome to the Literature Podcast, A Novel Review. My name is Seamus, your host, and together we will discuss, dissect, and explore the wonderful world of literature, and the wonderful world of literature is a vast and dense jungle, so let's start making our way through, one book at a time. Hello and welcome back to another episode of A Novel Review. Today, something a bit different, still talking about a book, of course, but to help me discuss this week's book is the author herself, Lucy E.M. Black, and the book, her novel, The Brickworks. Lucy E.M. Black is the author of the short story collection, The Marzipan Fruit Basket, the historical fiction novel, Eleanor Courtroom, Stella's Carpet, and now, of course, her upcoming novel, The Brickworks. Her award-winning short stories have been published in Britain, Ireland, USA, and Canada in literary journals and magazines, including Cyphers Magazine, The Hawaii Review, Antagonist Review, and others. Lucy studied creative writing at the undergraduate level and later earned her master's degree in 19th century British fiction, which I think we might touch on that a bit later, but for the minute, welcome to the show, Lucy. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you very much for um, having me as your guest today. No, no, it was a pleasure, and it was a fantastic pleasure to read your upcoming novel as well. I thought we might start by asking you to give us a slight short overview of the novel, The Brickworks, if that's all right. Absolutely. Um, The novel starts in 1879 with the fall of the Tay Bridge um, in Scotland. Um, In 1879, it was the longest bridge in the world at almost two miles, and it went from Dundee to Edinburgh. And um, during a horrific winter storm, the bridge fell and um, everybody on the, the train died. So it, it starts with this horrific moment in history. Mm-hmm. And um, that moment um, is very much part of the message of the novel, which is you know this tremendous sense of possibility and innovation that we think of when we think of the Victorian period, but also the downside to that kind of technology and and the human cost. So we start with the fall of the Tay Bridge and how one little boy, his name was Brody Smith, his father was driving the train and um, his father was blamed initially um, for the accident that killed everyone. And this really impacted Brody, um, Brody's life. And so he grew up to become a civil engineer. He was determined to prove that the fall of the bridge was not his father's fault. So as the the novel unspools, um, Brody ends up in America um, where he's studying engineering and um, goes to Buffalo and finds employment in a steel mill and becomes friends with another Scot who has also immigrated, Alistair. And um, both men are very adventurous and entrepreneurial. And they become fast friends and decide to throw their lot in together. And they um, find some financial backers and they start a brickworks um, in the Canadas. And uh, that's sort of the outline of the story. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to you don't want to reveal too much of the uh, the actual story itself, of course. Now, my first question is why bricks because as soon as i started reading it 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 immediately made me think of 
Patrick Suskind's Perfume or Pip Williams' The Dictionary of Lost Words, and they're both kind of stories. They're both very different stories from each other and from this novel as well. But they're stories that bring attention to perhaps an art form that's declined of late, perfume being from perfume, and then the dictionary, how the dictionary was created and, and the love and appreciation of words. And this one, of course, is about bricks. So it, it's honestly something I'd really never considered. So why why bricks? Well, it was um, a happy accident, to tell you the truth. Um, we were going for a Sunday drive and we happened across what I thought was an old woolen mill in the country. And um, so we, we hiked along until we could get close. And I discovered that it was the remains of something called the Cheltenham Brickworks. And um, we picked up a piece of brick and it was, um, I'll show you. I can't oh, show fantastic. Everybody. Look at that, the brick, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, um, it's quite coarse. And it's studded with straw, which is not something you see these days. Anyway, I we had a wonderful sort of little hike. And I took some pictures of, of the ruin and um, put the piece of brick on my writing room desk. And it just intrigued me. And I thought, why is there so much straw in that brick? What's mm -hmm. the story of this brickworks? And, and I began to, to remember that in Toronto, there was a huge fire at the turn of the century in 1904 that took out most of Toronto. And in the small town where I live in Port Perry, there was a huge fire in 19, 1883. And then again in 1884, which took out the whole of our little small town. And bricks became really important in Toronto and in all the sort of small surrounding communities because as these fires were happening, um, people decided that they were going to rebuild in brick and not clabbered. And so they started building little local brickworks all over the country. And I knew this, but I thought, how did they have the technology? How did they learn how to make bricks? Where did this mm -hmm. expertise come from? And so I started doing research and um, realized that a lot of the Scots immigrants had brought that technology and those skills with them and um, were instrumental in sort of the, the burgeoning development, if you will, of brick making here in the country and how that impacted um, the next stage of industrialization as the rural became more developed. So uh, the more research I did, the more um, pivotal a simple mm -hmm. brick um, seemed. I mean, that's so fantastic because I think when I started reading the story I, and now I finished the story, I think this is my favorite scene is, and I think it might even be the first scene after the prologue is Alistair's in an art gallery building and he's sort of, I don't know if confused is the right word, but he's kind of confused as to why everyone's appreciating the art and not appreciating the bricks and the building itself, which was, I was just like, oh yeah, I've never really considered it like I go to an art gallery to look at art but he was going to an art gallery to look at a building which was such a a wonderfully fresh idea I guess and now knowing that you've discovered the brick first I guess that's comes back to another question of why the Tay Bridge did this did you already have the knowledge of this Tay Bridge collapse or was it something you then had to seek out as a as a sort of a, a plot device to drive the character of Brody forward into America 
or was it just something that you you were aware of already and it just seemed to marry up quite nicely with the dates of the brick building industry taking off? There were a couple of things actually <clears throat> that all came together. Um, you will know just from keeping abreast of the news that there have been some catastrophic bridge disasters, mm -hmm. even in the last 50 years across the world. Um, in India, in the United States, in Brazil, in Quebec, here in Italy, Canada. I think has had a few as it, well, yeah. Italy. And um, <clears throat> I'm curious, I'm a curious person. Mm -hmm. And so I, I started doing a little reading on sort of bridge failures. And I came across this bridge that had failed in 1879 and the fact that Queen Victoria um, had, had been one of the first people to um, ride across the bridge in a train. And so, so that was lodged there. And then as I was doing the backstory for my characters, um, I realized that Brody would have been a very young boy around that time period. And we went to Scotland because I wanted to do some research on brick making and um, ended up doing a lot of research on jute mills and brick making. And then we rode a train across the Tay Bridge. Oh, wow. And I saw the, the remaining piers. You can actually see the piers from the 1879 wow. bridge when the tide is low. And it was just so incredible to me that, you know, the bridge had been rebuilt and people were taking this train every day, but there was this living piece of history right mm. there. And I thought, you know, this is something I need to talk about. This is something I want to, um, to draw attention to and celebrate, particularly because we still have bridge failures. Mm. And the reason for the bridge failures we're experiencing today are very similar to the reasons why the Tay Bridge fell. And um, so Brody keeps this little notebook, which you will have read um, in the text. And in it, he itemizes all the reasons why the bridge fell and what needs to be done to ensure that other bridges don't fall. And, and that is very much based upon contemporary research, but you know, put in, in Brody's language. Um, I consulted with a civil engineer um, who spent his career building bridges around the world. And uh, he did um, a lot of fact checking for me. And so the information that's embedded in the text is up to date and authentic as it could possibly be. That's interesting because I was actually going to ask that. So I'll jump to that question now is what kind of a writer are you? Because I imagine writing historical fiction can be quite difficult in that sometimes you 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 might just be sort of in a creative flurry and writing something down and then perhaps you're writing let's say Brody and Alistair are going to the bar does it ever get to a stage where you're writing and you think oh no was it is it called a bar or a pub or a public house and when they go in is it lager or beer and are they getting it in cups or mugs does that does that ever happen like are you a creative writer that needs to plan and know this beforehand or do you just sort of write the scene and then go back and retrospectively fact check your own work essentially and, and make it more authentic um a little bit of both to be honest with you um i'm a methodical writer um mm -hmm. so i do a lot of research before i get started 
And then I develop my characters. Um, I name them. I describe them. I know who their parents are. I sketch in that backstory. And um, once I have the characters and I've done some preliminary research, I can write my first draft. Mm -hmm. And I will blast through the first draft in a matter of months and then spend the next several years, literally, fact-checking <laughs> and layering in the history mm -hmm. and working on lexicon. Um, there are 20 characters in the brickworks that have speaking parts mm -hmm. and each one of them has um, their own sort of lexicon, which has been very carefully planned according to um, their religious background, their level of education, the region they hailed from. And my writing room is papered with these great huge flip charts with the name of the character and then their, their particular lexicon, the words they use when they swear, which consonants they drop when they're in mm -hmm. a hurry. So it, uh, the Brickworks itself um, took me six years um, to complete and um, 15 drafts. Wow. And um, each one of those drafts had a very um, specific focus Mm -hmm. um, in terms of what I was embedding into the story and um, what I was editing for. It's interesting, actually. I'd never actually considered editing a story like that, going through and just editing one particular thing. I, I, I like that idea. Did it ever become frustrating? Because there's quite a few back and forth conversations and you're saying you, you deliberately quietly uh, separated these characters. Did it ever become frustrating just trying to write simple scenes like this where you're sort of having to write one line and then thinking, oh God, how does, how does he respond? And maybe jumping up to the flip chart and taking a look. Do you feel like it stunts you creatively or is it just part of the process and you love it? Um, it's part of the process and I love it. But mm -hmm. the first draft, I won't have worried about these things. Right. So the okay. first draft, it will just come out the way it comes out. Mm -hmm. And it's the tweaking and the fine tuning and the editing and the, the rewriting that happens in the subsequent drafts where I really pay attention to those things. So, okay. you know, in the first draft, um, you know, Kieran might say, oh, shit. Well, that's not something that he would have really said. But by the time I'm finished, he says, Jesus, Mary and Joseph, <laughs> because <laughs> that's Kieran. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, that's good. That's good. And then, so then just jumping on the back of that sort of different editing process, I'd say, at least from my reading, I think you employed a interesting narrative style in that Brody was the character that sort of seemed to have the most backstory and we, we like the prologues about him and we open with him. But I felt like from my reading, Alistair was the main character. He was sort of the chief of the story itself. Was this like, is this something I've just created myself or is this something that you have, have, have worked into the story? No, um, I'm so interested that you picked up on that. You, you've obviously read really carefully um, and you're very perceptive. Um, when Thank I began much. the Brickworks, the story was about Alistair. Brody mm. came later. Right. So my first draft, it was just about Alistair. There's an art gallery that opened in 1905 in Buffalo that I love called the Albright Knox. And... So the second chapter where you have Alistair at the Albright Knox and he's looking at 
the beautiful building and then mm-hmm. sees Violet. That was my initial first chapter. Wow. But I realized after I'd written the first draft that I couldn't capture with one man everything that I wanted to capture. And so mm-hmm. my second draft is is when Brody came in and I layered in all of the backstory about the miners and fire damp and the jute mills and the fall of the bridge. Mm-hmm. So that you picked up on that is very interesting to me. Okay. Well, that's that's good. I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm happy that I picked up on that. <laughs> so as a writer then, especially with historical fiction, and I don't think this is giving away anything to the story, but obviously something bad's going to happen along the way. But as the writer, you get complete control over what that is and what it's going to be and how severe it is and how it's going to take shape. Is that something you labor over? Is that something you carefully decide what kind of struggles are going to be interweaved into this story? Because it's a story about a, you know, two men coming together and becoming friends and then they start a business together. And there's, of course, there's women and there's some love stories in there as well. So there's many and multiple opportunities to drop the hammer on some bad situations. And I won't spoil how you do it, of course, but is that something you labor over? Um, It is something um, that I put a lot of thought into because, you know, there has to be that tension. But I also wanted it to be very reflective of what would have happened historically. Mm -hmm. And historically, there are these horrible accidents. You know, we talk in the steel mill about this horrible accident where this man's chest is sliced open and a little boy is suffocated while he's cleaning out the, um, the soot tunnels. And these were industrial accidents, which were quite common. And then, you know, as we go on, we have the overseer in the in the jute mill taking advantage of the young females. We have um, fire damp happening in Motherwell, where miners are, are killed in a small explosion. And then it goes on, and I'm not going to give away the other things that happen um, in the later part of the book. Um, mm-hmm. But... I think that they're very natural um, consequences um, or outcomes um, when we have this kind of innovation, when we have this kind of industrial development. And and I wanted to highlight those things. I I wanted people to understand that there was a real cost. When you're doing your research, is that something that, even though it's a terrible thing, kind of excites you because you've read, you know, uh, this this particular thing happened and it was terrible, but you're like, oh, damn, yes, I'm going to steal that. And that's going to be something that I use in my story. Does that excite you? Um, yeah, <laughs> it does, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, and um, I, I read a lot. I read a lot of accounts mm-hmm. of um, the kinds of accidents that happened and um, took all of my detail from real life accounts. Mm-hmm. So none of that was fabricated. I mean, it was fabricated for the story, but yep. all of the detail came came from history. I mean, like it shows as well, because the story is just so rich and it's it's easy to read, but not easy in the sense that it's a simple story. I think it's it's simple, but it's, it's simple because it feels authentic, not because it's a, a silly little story, but it feels authentic and it feels like you're actually there in the moment and you don't have to struggle and it's believable as well. I think that's what I'm trying to say here. It's a believable story. So 
I mean, the hard work is it definitely shows. Did you have any inspirations from fictional writers that influence your writing style? Because I know sometimes in historical fiction, it's a completely different story to what people normally write. So was there any writers you tried to sort of, that, that, that guided you through this process? I am. Um... Or perhaps any writers just in general that influence your writing style? I would have to go back to my love of the 19th century. Good. Um, we got back Charles, there. Charles Dickens. I was um, going to ask about Charles Dickens as well, but please go on, go on. Charles, Charles Dickens um, was the focus of my um, graduate work mm -hmm. um, when I was at graduate school. And um, he exposed um, many, many um, things um, for the working poor, yeah. um, and uh, the conditions, um, the poverty, um, the debtors' prisons, um, the abuse of women, mm. um, all of those things really feature um, in his books. And that was very impressive. I mean, that's how I first learned um, so much social history, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, but I also um, love... Um, Jane Austen and the mm. Bronte sisters yep. um, in in the way in which they present their novels of manners, if you will. Mm -hmm. And they give us these um, minutiae um, that create a sense of verisimilitude. So even though you haven't been to a country dance, there's just enough detail so that, that I, I hope that you feel like you're there watching mm -hmm. the country dance take place. And, yep. and, and that comes, I believe, um, from having read a lot of Austin and the Brontes and um, Dickens. I think also characterization. I have some fun um, with some of my characters. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think that that love of character-driven fiction also comes from Charles Dickens. Not that that I, I would pretend to be anywhere near as effective as he is or any of the other writers, but certainly that's what I would aspire um, towards, if you will. So, I, and then, oh, also Elizabeth Gaskell. I mean, her book, North mm. and South, I think is mm -hmm. seminal in yep. terms of um, exposing conditions um, in the mills. And uh, I think those books are really important. I think they still have something really important to say to all of us. Um, and I, I hope that Brickworks has a little bit of that flavor. No, absolutely. And I just wanted to, your dedication to the start of the book is Charles Dickens. And I've, I've got the quote here and it says, and can it be that in a world so full and busy, the loss of one weak creature makes a void in any heart, so wide and deep that nothing but the width and depth of vast eternity can fill it up? That's that's a that's a that's a big quote. That's you know, it's almost such a dark quote. What because I I don't want to speak about the novel, but why did you pick that particular quote for the brickworks? Well, um, as you know, there are two key characters in the novel mm -hmm. um, who die as a result of the development and the industrialization. Mm -hmm. And I hope that um, readers are moved by their deaths. Mm -hmm. I, I hope 
that their deaths resonate and touch a place in someone's heart. And, and that really is one of sort of my driving ambitions for the entire novel is that we would understand that although there's this tremendous sense of possibility um, toward the end of the Victorian era and this um, enthusiasm for science and technology and innovation, there are human costs. Mm. And um, here we are in, in 2023 and you know we're, we're far more advanced than they were then but there's still human costs to the mm. kinds of decisions that we're making. Bridges are still falling. Our environment is really suffering. Um, yeah, I think um, need... the Qatar, uh, was it the Qatar World Cup? Was it last year? And they had 4,000 people die just building those stadiums in Qatar for the Soccer yes. World Cup. Yeah, it's, yes. yeah. And, and so I just... I guess my hope is that people would be mindful and um, a little bit reflective um, about the costs of the kinds of decisions that we're making as a society. Mm -hmm. And although this is a historical novel, I think it still speaks to some of the decisions that, that we make and um, the burden of responsibility that we have. And, and I felt that Dickens' quote really captured that. No, beautiful. Yeah, I mean, that just that sums it up perfectly. So The Brickworks is out this October. Uh, do we have a specific release date yet? October 14th. October 14th through Now or Never Press. Lucy, I mean, we finished the talking about Brickworks, but that doesn't mean we have to finish speaking altogether because I want to ask a few more questions of you. I want to know, firstly, what are you reading? And also, what are your favorite books? Okay. Um, what I'm reading now is a book by Peter Brooks. I don't know if you can see it. It's called Seduced oh, yeah. by Story. Mm -hmm. Yep. I don't know. Um, so I've just started this book, but I've read a number of essays by this man. And um, what he's talking about is the use and abuse of narrative particularly in social media. And he says um, his argument is that traditionally um, media in North America anyway, um, attempted or purported to be um, objective and they reported on objective facts and truths. Things were verified and fact-checked before they were reported. And um, in the last eight years, um, particularly as a result of a particular American president. We don't need to uh, name. <laughs> yes, who will remain nameless. He will not be named. Um, story or narrative um, has replaced objective reporting. And so we have social media intruding upon any kind of objectivity in the kind of news stories that are capturing headlines. And people are using and abusing story mm -hmm. um, and presenting what they refer to as alternative facts. And um, so this is a fascinating book. And um, I've only just begun it, but um, it's very compelling. And uh, 
just another interesting way to look at how we use um, story in our society. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And I guess that sort of it just sort of goes back to a question that I now want to ask that pertains to your writing style and, of course, historical fiction. Do you predominantly read fiction or nonfiction? Because if you're, I mean, two of your four books now have been historical fiction. And I remember Matthew Riley, the Australian author, saying he exclusively read nonfiction because he was constantly searching for those ideas like the Tay Bridge collapse and, and the brickworks that you found. Do you read a lot of fiction as well, or is it nonfiction I, searching for the I, next idea? I do. I, um, I try to read widely. Mm -hmm. um, I've been published by what we call small Canadian independent presses, um, as opposed to the big boys like Penguin mm -hmm. yep. um, or Bertelsmann. Um, and so I read a lot of um, Canadian fiction that comes out of the independent press system because I believe that they really focus exclusively on what I would call literary fiction mm -hmm. or experimental fiction. Um, whereas um, what we tend to see with stuff that's hitting the bestseller lists here anyway, are things um, that can be uploaded to other platforms like Netflix and Disney and um, become mm -hmm. movies. Yep. And so stuff that 10 years ago we would have called a beach read is now on the bestseller list and yep. um, it, it's being turned into a made for TV series and not to diss that. I mean, you know, I would love a penguin deal um, or a Simon <laughs> Schuster deal, um, but, but they have different publishing priorities. Mm -hmm. And um, so I read a lot of Canadian independent press um, releases, but I also read a lot of nonfiction as, as your friend indicated. Um, I'm curious and um, I'm interested in learning about lots of different things. Mm -hmm. And books are just a wonderful passport into areas um, that I know nothing about. So I do try to read widely. I try to read between six to 10 books a month. And um, I don't read fiction at all when I'm writing first draft, though. I will add that as a caveat. Okay. When I'm writing first draft, I need to keep the voices in my head straight. Yep. Mm -hmm. and, and how long and will how long will the first draft last? Is it just kind of till it's done, or do you generally set aside like a two month period of here we go? Um, well, interesting. Um, I'm, I've started a new historical fiction project. Oh, good, good. And, and um, so it took me um, a month to write the first chapter. So I'd done all the research, I'd built the characters, and then I've written the first chapter, which is 55 pages. And now I've stopped. I need to go to Ireland. I need to do some more research. And so I'm going to continue... Um, building my research files, if you will, um, before I go back into the second chapter and write hmm. first draft of that. So for a month, I didn't read fiction. I read nonfiction, but not fiction. And uh, it depends. Um, Stella's Carpet, um, when I wrote that, I wrote first draft in six weeks, um, wow. straight through. Hmm. Um, it just... It depends on the project and how much research is involved. Okay, that's great. Yeah, six weeks is, that's that's fast. That's very fast. So that must have been amazing for you. Uh, and lastly, of course, favourite book? Um, Biggest influence? You can have three. 
I could have three. That's All right. Um, I would say Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Okay. Yeah. I, I fell in love with that book as a young girl of about 10. And I reread it every summer. And oh, fantastic. <laughs> and uh, I, I have much of it memorized. But um, wow. it's just um, a lovely tale. And it, you know, it's full of, of um, morals. It's um, full of female agency. Um, mm. I, I love it. So I would, I would say that. Um, I would say Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Mm-hmm. Um, I love, uh, I love that book, and I've read it many, many times. And uh, Pip is just such a wonderful character. And um, the way he grows and develops through his various experiences. And then we have the surprising um, character, Megwitch, at the end. Um, I love Great Expectations. Um, And then the mysterious Stella. And I love the fact that Dickens rewrote the ending because there was so much protest about how he had ended the novel. I think that's a really fun thing. Um, and I would say the third favorite book would be North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. Nice, yeah. Um, social history in that novel is incredible, but also a lovely romance with a happy ending. So. Well, I mean, a master's degree in 19th century British fiction is showing itself at the moment. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Lucy. It's been fantastic to talk to you and pick your brains about historical fiction and, of course, your upcoming novel, The Brickworks. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure to speak with you. It's been a pleasure to have you here. Cheers.